Welcome back to the 73rd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories. Our first two are going to be talking about Biden's current foreign policy and some of the errors, especially the ones involving China. And then our last article is going to talk about NASA's estimate of a asteroid that would be about 10 quatillion dollars and if it was mined properly would crash the world economy. But, you know, it's a speculative piece and I think it's a fun one, so we're going to jump to that at the end. And of course, we'll finish today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on a day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So there's definitely a sharp contrast between Trump's more self-reliant and Biden's globalist foreign politics. Though Biden has shared some trends and he has, of course, onshored some jobs, especially in the chips industry, these new leading technology industries, he's still adamant about being involved and being a large power player all across the world. But are we overexerting ourselves from Russia and Ukraine to Taiwan and China to Israel and Iran? These are a lot of the talking points you're hearing recently and a lot of the stories that you've been seeing. Has America overextended? Has the hegemonic era ended? Or can we still effectively project our power around the world? And I'm not asking should we, I'm just saying can we. And I'd love to hear your opinions down in the comment section. Let's jump to our first article. This one comes from the Washington Examiner. Biden's small stick diplomacy is a disaster. So while Teddy Roosevelt may have been the man who pioneered, or at least made it relevant in American politics, big stick diplomacy, Biden is the pioneer of small-stick diplomacy, or at least that's what the examiner would want you to think. Quote, this president is not even given to speaking softly while carrying a big stick. To Biden's credit, he has always been wary of big-stick diplomacy, if only because it leads to a costly wars that the voters don't like. To his discredit, Biden has always been prone to shouting loudly and often nonsensically. This, his big shtick, was displayed in all its stunted glory in his State of the Union speech when he went off script and bellowed, naming one leader who would change places with Xi Jinping. Show me one. We were looking at him. China has the world's largest navy and has twice as many men and women in uniform as the United States does, end quote. And I will push back. Yes, they have more naval ships. Are they better ships? No. They have more men in the military. Does that mean, or sorry, more men and women. Does that mean that they're better trained, that they have better equipment? No. But then again, the Russian tactic for a lot of history has been, we have a large populace, let's just throw it at the enemy. So just because we have better technology doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to come out on top. But I don't like when the examiner says these things. Oh, they have a bigger navy. They have a bigger army. It really is trying to speak to, not fear-mongering, but something 
about the American soul, which is, no, no, we have to be the best. We have to have the most, the better version of whatever they have. So it's kind of trying to stoke those fears or even just that feeling inside you. And I just wanted to push back a little bit. Because while I do agree with a lot of their topics, of course, it's sensationalist media. And we can always take a step back and say, hey, yeah, this is where you're wrong. This is where you're trying to rile up your audience. And that's why I'm just going to point it out. And let's be clear, you probably know that too. But I just feel like it's something that some people, they just read through these articles and they don't necessarily think about it. And sometimes you really have to stop and say, so what angle are they coming from? Where are they right? Where are they wrong? And even if you agree with them, find a few places where they're wrong just so you're enforcing your critical thinking. Sorry, I'm ranting to you at you like you're a college student. I'm a college professor. And like I know anything about critical thinking. I'm still young and naive. So if there's ever been a better time, in my opinion, to be warring around our war, sorry, waving around our big stick, it would be right now. China, no doubt, has seen the weakness on the world stage. You know, when we pulled out of Afghanistan, our begging and pleading with Iran or OPEC or, of course, the whole debacle with the balloon. There is blood in the water. And I'll tell you now, we are definitely not the shark in this situation. China is trying to find any point where we are weak enough, or they're trying to wait until we are weak enough in order to invade Taiwan. We have known for a long time that they wanted to invade Taiwan. They have done mock military drills on what it would look like crossing the strait and invading Taiwan. So like I said, we are fully aware that they want to. We know that they are going to pursue this at some point. And a lot of strategists have said that this is the decade they have to do it before their population starts declining rapidly, before all these chip sanctions really, really hurt their military economy. And I would argue that if it does happen this century, we're not quite prepared. We need more time for a military buildup. We've been sending a lot of our resources, military resources, to NATO to funnel into Ukraine. So if there's any moment of weakness that the Chinese see, not just the fact that we are going to take a while to build up militarily, or at least to the level that we would need in order to help Taiwan, but also on the, oh, they have a weak leader front, this is the time to do it, that's when they are going to strike. And that's what I think is extremely dangerous. And that's why you probably heard the narrative, oh, this was a trial balloon. Not literally a trial balloon to see, oh, yes, what can we, what armament can we get into the United States? But no, no, a trial balloon politically. What can we do? What can we get away with? And I know you've heard this through line a lot because it is an important narrative that's been spun from it. But I don't actually disagree. I do think it's over-talked about. But I do agree with the premise that they are assessing whether or not we would be willing to shoot down a balloon and deal with the political and geopolitical consequences versus just letting it fly over the United States and then dealing with it when it's outside the airspace and could be put down on the ground in the water. There are lots of options. There were lots of options on how to deal with it. And we didn't necessarily choose the weakest one because the weakest one would have been letting it fly back home. But we definitely didn't choose the strongest one either, in my opinion. So on the one of the big failures 
that isn't getting much coverage, though, in Biden's small stick diplomacy is the renewed or attempted renewal of the Iran nuclear deal. Quote, in January, a video appeared from November 4th in which Biden, caught by a surprise question at an election rally in California, blurted out that the effort to revive the Iran nuclear deal was, quote, dead, but we're not going to announce it, end quote. The 2015 nuclear deal with Iran was the centerpiece of the Obama administration's foreign policy. No matter that Iran is run by a corrupt clerical dictatorship that tortures its people at home, assassinates its dissidents abroad, and is the world's leading sponsor of terrorism, end quote. So, yes, Biden just said right there, if you didn't hear the quote, if you didn't hear it clearly enough, that the deal's dead, but no, no, we're not going to draw public attention to it. We're not going to highlight our weakness. And even when they were negotiating, we weren't getting much news out of any, I'm saying any media site, including Fox, including MSNBC. None of the mainstream was covering the fact that we were trying to cut deals with Iran and having them negotiate with Russia on our behalf, essentially. Or, I take that back, it's not like they were actually going and saying, oh, yes, we're, we're negotiating with Russia. But Iran was basically the middleman between Russia and the U.S. and playing them off one another in order to get a better deal. So you didn't really hear about this when it was going on, and that's because it's perceived weakness. If we can't even get the Iranians to stop building up their nuclear arsenal, if we can't even persuade them, if we can't even bribe them like we did before, and yes, I know I am being very biased on that one, and I am very well aware that some people would disagree with what I'm saying. But if you can't even do that, you're obviously not, I don't want to say threatening enough, because that's not the goal. You don't necessarily want to be threatening on the world stage. You don't want to get what you want just by threatening other countries. But there's obviously nothing there. There's no benefit for Iran to take this deal. And that's because either we're not offering them a good enough deal, or they don't believe that we'll actually enforce it properly. And they were just trying to get more things out of us during this negotiating process. And Biden finally said, no, we're not, we're not doing this anymore. But he's not going to announce it because that makes him look weak. So Trump had pulled us out of the deal, which put the Biden administration in a weakened position when they returned to the negotiating table. And that's the thing. I don't necessarily think it was a bad thing to pull out of the deal because I don't think it was a great structured deal. But you definitely cannot say that from a strategic point of view, if you were to go back into negotiating, Trump did not screw over Biden. If you pull out of the deal and then you have, a, basically, let's say your boss pulls out of a contract and then when he retires, you come back to that person and say, oh, can we get that contract back? Some people are going to be nice and they're going to say, yeah, of course, you know, we were longtime friends. We were trying to make this deal, blah, blah, blah. Other people are going to say, well, now the contract's going to be more favorable to me. You guys had the favorable terms the first time and, you know, your boss was really mean to me or your boss didn't want to deal with me. And I didn't, I, that was disrespectful in my opinion. And also, maybe you're trying to appease shareholders. They really want that contract back. And Iran knows that. Iran knows that Joe Biden wants this to be another key pinnacle deal, just like it was for Obama. So they're going to try to extract as much value out of it as they can. And instead of taking us up on their offers, they struck deals with China and Russia. So, 
you see this coalition forming, like I mentioned at the top of the show, Russia, Iran, China. You see these countries that don't necessarily like us. They don't want to deal with us. They're building their own coalition. They're building a wall where they're trying to interject wherever we are. And now we're turning to our allies because we don't want to get in direct conflict with them, but we're turning to our allies like Israel to drone strike some of their facilities in Iran. We're trying to support Taiwan with bringing TSMC to the United States so that we absolutely need their company in order to build our new fabs. So then we have a strategic reason to protect them if China tries to invade. And we're obviously backing Ukraine. So the battle lines are forming a lot more solidly. You could say that there's a, like I said, a wall coming up between the sides. And it's only getting taller and taller and taller, in my opinion. And we have not only been adding to our list of enemies, but shrinking our list of allies. And this is where I think Biden has made the largest mistake. Because we knew we were coming into unstable times, especially with the shakeup that COVID caused. So this would be the time to really shore up your allies, make sure that those who are behind you are still behind you, make new friends. And that's not to say we haven't made new friends. We've strengthened ties with India, Australia, Japan, South Korea. But we have also faulted some of them. And we lost Philippines to China there for a little bit because they were offering large amount of infrastructure deals. China was going to come in and build lots of infrastructure in the Philippines. So we have to really step back and say, okay, we understand that we don't necessarily agree with all of these other countries' foreign policies. I want you to think Saudi Arabia. We were not happy with what the Philippines were trying to do, but we still need to think about the Philippines and say, okay, no, no, we may not agree with all your politics. We may not love your leaders, but at the end of the day, we don't want you to work with China. We don't want you to favor China over the United States. So we need to take a step back and stop saying, oh, yes, we are the moral high ground. We are the moral police. If your policies in your country do not bend to our will, then we will not work with you properly. If we can't agree on this one thing, we're not going to work with you. We can't afford that at this point. We can't be losing allies, especially key ones such as Saudi Arabia, who has a large, large influence in the Middle East. And even if you would argue, some would argue that they don't have a large political influence because everybody there doesn't necessarily like them, they still have a huge military presence in the Middle East. And could you really afford them joining teams with Iran and trying to invade, invade Israel or Iraq? I don't think you could. Now, to be clear, I am not the most well-versed on Middle East politics. I've spent a lot of my time worrying about South China Sea politics, China, Asia, and even then I'm not as well-versed as a lot of the people you could hear talk about this. But just from a bird's-eye view, we don't want to alienate our allies. We want to strengthen our ties because that's exactly what Russia, Iran, and China are doing. They're building a coalition. They're relying on each other for trade. They're becoming some of the largest trade partners between one another, trading military technology as well as commodities and just technology in general, sharing information. So we have to make sure that the people that are in our corner and the ones that we're in the corner for, we keep those connections good. Because at this point, it feels like we're headed towards 
a big kerfuffle, if you want to put it that way. And it does scare me just a little bit when I see Biden not only being weak, but also losing some of our allies. All right. There's another quote from this one that I really wanted to read. The U.S. is already fighting one proxy war with Russia in Ukraine while trying to fend off another in China with China in Taiwan. It is now prepared for a third, this time in the Middle East. On January 22nd, the U.S. and Israel conducted Exercise Juniper Oak 23.2. The Pentagon called it the largest U.S.-Israel partnered exercise in history, end quote. The maneuvers integrated Israel into the U.S. Central Command and included unmanned aerial vehicles, strategic bombers, jet fighters, and precision fighters, and the USS George W. Bush Carrier Strike Group, end quote. So we're being stretched then. That's all I'm trying to say. We're dealing with three different things in three different areas. You never know where another one's going to come up. You never know where we're going to have to deploy all of our resources. And honestly, I don't know if we would be fully capable of responding the way that we would need to to all these different crises if they were to escalate at the same time. And that does scare me a little bit. All right, let's jump to, on the same thread, but a different article. This one comes from The Intercept. U.S. weather balloons to spy on, sorry, U.S. sent weather balloons to spy on China and the Soviet Union in the 1950s. So like I said, this article comes from The Intercept, and I want to read you the first paragraph or so from this article. Quote, before the balloon was shot down by the U.S. on Saturday, China's government stated it was a civilian airship used for research, mainly meteorological. For its part, the Pentagon says it was very, with very high confidence that the balloon was conducting surveillance. It's understandable that the U.S. government would be suspicious, given that America sent spy balloons exactly the same size over both the Soviet Union and China in 1956 and made exactly the same claims as China is making today about what we were up to, end quote. And what I find despicable, mm, I shouldn't say despicable, what I find disingenuous about this article is they are trying to frame it as if we should not be outraged. I don't disagree that we did the exact same thing in the 1950s. But that is not the point. That's the point the article is trying to make. It's trying to say, oh, well, we did the exact same thing, so we can't be mad. No, that is not the case whatsoever. Yes, we did the exact same thing. And they had the right to be outraged then, and we have the right to be outraged now. It is a violation of sovereignty. And as an American, I am obviously biased. I think we should be doing these sorts of information gathering. And I think the Chinese should be doing these sorts of information gathering, or at least in order to protect their sovereignty and in order to best aid their nation from a realist point of view or a realist geopolitical point of view. I understand why they would do something like this. And they believe they're in the right because they're defending their nation. They're trying to make sure that their nation's needs are met that the U.S. isn't stockpiling a whole bunch of different weapons that could possibly reach China or whatever their surveillance was for. So I understand exactly why China would do this. 
But that doesn't mean, and just because we did in the past, that does not mean that we should not be outraged when something like this happens. Because at the end of the day, we do not want China spying on us. I, like I said, there's a difference between understanding why they would want to do it and why it's in their best interest and actually allowing it to happen. And also, they let us see the balloon. That's what I'm, I'm very concerned about. The author talks about how a lot of these balloons actually weren't seen. Some of them were shot down, but a lot of them weren't seen, and they were at very high altitudes, and we never ran into trouble with them. And that is one aspect of this, which is the balloon, I don't know if it could have been any higher, but it was at a specific altitude where it could be seen, photographed, videoed with just a phone, without any special technology. So I feel like there is more to this than just trying to get surveillance. I really do believe, from everything I've seen, that is the Chinese testing what they can get away with. And then you see that we shot down another unidentified object. And I'm not saying a UFO. I'm saying for the technical term, an unidentified object over this weekend. And then also you saw these lasers over Hawaii. This is all speculation at this point. People are saying it's a Chinese satellite. And then after all this, we launch an ICBM missile into the Pacific Ocean. Now, it is unarmed, but we still launched one into the Pacific Ocean. This is rising tensions. And I think this is exactly what the Chinese wanted. They wanted this balloon to go across the United States to see whether we were strong enough or how we would respond. And then when we didn't initially shoot it down, they thought, oh, this is... It's a good moment. We can send another balloon or another unidentified object over into Alaska. We shot that down. We saw what people are speculating are lasers from a Chinese satellite. I don't know if that's true or not. It could have been, for all the people know that are reporting, it could have been a cool laser show that one of the hotels was putting on at a distant island or something to that effect. But then you see acts like this. And then you see the U.S. respond by shooting an ICBM missile into the Pacific Ocean. The Chinese were trialing us. They were seeing how we would respond, see what Biden would do. And then when he was weak the first time, they tried it again. He was stronger the second time. They tried something else. And this is just a theory, but if you want to run with it, they tried something else with the, using the lasers on the satellite to scan the ground. And then the U.S. said, no, no, this is enough. We're going to pull a North Korea. We're going to do what North Korea does, and we're going to send a missile out into the ocean pointlessly just to prove that we're not afraid to send an inert missile into the ocean. And I'm not saying it's a weak response. It's more symbolic than anything. But these tensions are rising. These are not going to be fun times in the next few months if we keep escalating in the way we're escalating right now. And the only way, in my opinion, to truly deter China from pressing us is to show, one, we're not afraid to back down, so we should have shot the balloon a little bit earlier, and the ICBM, while it is a pointless gesture because it doesn't actually do anything, it is still a show that, yes, we're acknowledging that you're a problem and we have the ability to shoot at you with an intercontinental ballistic missile, and we're just throwing this one in the ocean because we don't need it because we have so many of them. So I think these are steps in having the big stick diplomacy that's going to deter them. 
But at the end of the day, we need to ensure that Taiwan is protected. In order to truly deter China from going into Taiwan, it's not a thing of, oh, we need to show that we are strong as the United States. It's, no, we need to show that our bond, our agreements, our treaty, not official treaties, our agreements, our contracts, our social contract with Taiwan is strong. That's what we need to show is strong, not just the U.S. independently. We need to show that we are willing to send aid to Taiwan, just like we've sent aid to Ukraine. And yes, I know the warmongers, or sorry, the anti-warmongers, the anti-warhawks are probably sitting there saying, Alex, wait, you're saying we should just give money to Taiwan? And I have been thinking about this a lot, and I don't like just giving money to different countries in order for them to defend themselves, just giving them weapons, and I don't want to encourage non-peaceful interactions between countries. But I also think that Taiwan, and this is because I'm biased and I've spent many years worried about this issue, but I think that Taiwan is, just as Ukraine is, they are both very strategical points. If Russia were to fully annex Ukraine, they would have a very, or at least the region that they have now and Crimea, they have a direct land corridor to the Black Sea which allows them to circumvent the issue in the Baltic Sea, which is they're completely surrounded by NATO countries in the Baltic Sea, especially now that Sweden and Finland have applied for membership. So that gives them access to the Mediterranean via Istanbul, which is Turkey, a very friendly nation to Russia. So you see how this is strategically advantageous to them. Taiwan is impeding China's ability to extend their control over the South China Sea. So it is strategically important that Taiwan stay in place in order to corral China and to keep them from exerting undue influence in the region. And yes, I understand. We are not there. We are not living in those regions. Why does it matter, Alex? And my thing is, at the end of the day, if you want to remain in a hegemonic world, if you want to remain in a world where the U.S. is on top and not a second-rate nation, then you have to keep the status quo. And in order to keep the status quo, you have to keep other countries from becoming more strategically placed, able to exert more control in order to maybe peel off nations like the Philippines, like we've seen China try to do. And I'm not necessarily saying a world ruled by the United States is the best world, but I'm saying that I like the world that I have grown up in. I like growing up in the greatest, na in my opinion, the greatest nation on the earth. And I don't necessarily want American supremacy to be challenged and have to live in a world that is dominated by a different country. Because honestly, if I'm being 100% honest, that scares me. I don't know what that looks like. I know what the status quo looks like. I'm not completely happy with the status quo inside of America. But geopolitically, I like the status quo where America is on top. That's just my opinion, and it is a little bit fear-based as well. I'm not trying to pretend that, oh yes, we are the high and mighty Americans. We know what's best for the world. I'm not saying that. But I do like the fact that we are the greatest nation on earth and it affords us some limited benefits within our own nation. 
and it allows us a little bit of negotiating room when talking with other countries, able to get favorable deals that allow us to import certain things at a good price, that allow us to cultivate great technology and encourage great minds to come to our country and innovate. And I do love all of these things. So I think these are important questions that we need to address. And that's why these war, anti-warmonger talking heads, while I agree that we shouldn't be outright encouraging war, I do also think there's a counterpoint, which is you can say that, at least the American ones, you can say that from your cushy American house that has been created by the system of America being the greatest country in the world. You can say that from a place of privilege. And I'm not, I don't hate to use that word privilege, but we do have this amazing advantage and it has allowed us to thrive. And you can say those things that, oh, no, 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 we, we are better than this. We shouldn't be involved in these geopolitical issues because we have gotten in the dirt and we have defeated the USSR and we have been the hegemonic power for the latter half of these two decades. So I think there's a more in-depth conversation that needs to be going on here, and it really makes me sad when The Intercept is saying, oh, no, no, China has the right to do this because we did it to them. Yes, we did it to them, but it doesn't mean that it's right, and it doesn't mean that we don't have the right to be outraged because when they're criticizing people for being outraged or being concerned about it, that's what makes me extremely angry. And sorry, I went on a long rant with this one. But that was the whole first segment. It was supposed to incorporate both of these articles about the weakness of the American foreign policy and how we can address it. All right, so I did promise that we were going to have an article talking about mining a $10 quintillion asteroid. So I'll make it very quick, but I just thought it was a, a cool article that I read from the New York Times the, you've heard these billionaires and you've heard NASA talk about possibly mining asteroids. And this one has a metal shell and it is full of nickel and other valuable metals as well as platinum. And what I thought was interesting here is the authors talk about how if they were to actually mine this asteroid and bring back everything, not just a little bit, but bring back every single mineral on the asteroid, it would actually crash the world economy because, or at least in these certain segments where we're talking about nickel, copper, and these other sort of elements, because the law of supply states, when you have an undue supply, when you have way too much supply, demand's going to go down. And when demand goes down, price goes down, or at least demand relative to supply goes down. So if you have a lot of nickel that you're bringing back from this asteroid, well, all of a sudden there's so much nickel that people don't have to go and buy it for $5 a pound. Now they can buy it for a dollar a pound. So it was always interesting to me when you hear about Bezos saying, oh, yes, we're going to go mine these asteroids. And it brings up a, a really big question, which is what's this a future economy? Because it's very expensive to go mine these asteroids. But if there are ones like this one that's in the asteroid belt that are worth $10 quintillion, is Bezos just going to bring back all of the nickel and then, like the oil companies used to do, just store it so that it doesn't go onto the free market and then crash the price? 
or are they only going to go for the valuable metals? And then once we start losing these other metals on Earth that we use for all of our circuits, our technology, is that when they're going to start mining these other resources? And at that point, is it still going to be cost-effective? Because these minerals aren't necessarily the most expensive things. Don't get me wrong, they're not cheap. But compared to platinum or gold or even diamonds, which could be mined from these asteroids in theory, then, you know, what's the economy going to look like? And I thought this was a very interesting speculative article. And honestly, I think it's worth a read for yourself because I can't summarize it well enough. And also, I'm not, I don't understand all the science behind it as well as I wish I could. And I think that if you want to read this one, there'll be a link in the description where you can find it. It's a really great article. You do have to be a New York Times subscriber, but maybe they'll give you one free article. I don't know. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from the uh, animal rescue site. Golden Retriever Mama teaches her puppies how to play in the snow. So have you ever gotten into a snowball fight with your parents? Well, if not, I, I am sorry. And maybe your parents could take a page out of this doggy mama's book. Quote, being a mom is a tough job. And that's not only true for humans, but animals as well. However, alongside the hard stuff is also a lot of fun stuff. Just like Boone, a golden retriever living in northern Vermont. Just ask Boone. End quote. So Boone is trying to teach her youngins one thing or one valuable lesson about playtime. Quote, in the video, you can see Boone and a handful of playful puppies outside in the snow. The seven-week-old puppies are still learning the ways of the world, and Mama Boone is more than happy to teach them how to navigate the snow and play and roughhouse, end quote. And it really is a cute video and photos that you see, and beautiful landscape, too, in Vermont. If you want to see any of those cute photos or videos, if you want to read the uh, asteroid story or any of the other stories that I highlighted here today, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button as well as the links to the podcast on all the other platforms that we're on currently, so you can download it, listen on the go, that sort of thing. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.